You rely on this podcast to stay informed and connected with your local community, and we rely on you. Without listener support, this show simply wouldn't exist. Be a part of the team that makes this show possible by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute. Donate at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thank you. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. My name is Bill Radke. We're about to catch you up on this week's major events with my local journalist colleagues, Publicola's editor and publisher, Erica Barnett. Erica, thanks for coming on the show today. I still don't hear Erica. I'm going to check. I'm going to see if I can hear my other guests. How about Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone? Hi, Patrick. Okay, I'm not hearing Patrick either, so that must be on my end. We're going to have, oh, I think I heard that. Patrick, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, I got you. I got you. We probably just pushed a button. Erica, I probably hello. can hear you too. Hello, hello. Hello, I hear I both of you. Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson. Alex, thanks for coming on the show today. Still not hearing Alex. How, can you hear me now? I, now I got you. Okay, all I've right. got all three of my guests, which, by the way, I, I can see them even when I can't hear them because we live stream the show. So you can watch, too. You can watch on YouTube or Facebook. You just search KUOW Public Radio. And we have another participant here for a few minutes with us to begin the show as well because, as you know, the U.S. Supreme Court this morning officially overturned the constitutional right to an abortion. And we're going to discuss with our panel in a moment. First, we have from the KUOW newsroom, reporter Eilish O'Neill is joining us. Eilish, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. So as we know, the Supreme Court ruling ends the federal protection of abortion rights. States have more leeway now to make their own abortion restrictions. Abortion is legal in Washington state up to the point of fetal viability. So, Eilish, what is the latest estimate for how many people are going to come here from other states seeking abortions? About a 400 percent increase in the number of people seeking abortions in Washington. Um, Some say some activists say that's on the low end, actually. Uh, The expectation is that people will fly into the Seattle area from faraway states and also drive to eastern Washington clinics, mainly from Idaho. Right. Idaho Idaho has that trigger law tied to the Supreme Court ruling. So. Uh, very uh, extreme restrictions coming from Idaho in the next 30 days. So at least the Washington clinics that provide abortions, what are they going to do to prepare for this influx? They're doing everything they can. They're increasing hours, adding Saturday clinics, hiring more staff, some of that staff coming from states where abortion is going to be illegal very soon. Um, Planned Parenthood has launched a hospitality fund, what they're calling a hospitality fund, to uh, help people travel to Washington for abortions. One abortion provider in Washington State, the Cedar River Clinics, they actually opened a whole new clinic in Yakima last week. Um, So clinics are really, clinics that provide abortions in Washington State are really trying to ramp up to meet the increased demand. But at least in the short term, there's just no way to increase services enough to um, meet the entire influx that's expected. And what is that going to mean for residents of Washington state? It will be harder to get an appointment. There will be longer wait times for an appointment. And if you're pregnant, every week you wait for an appointment is a big deal. I mean, you might move from the first trimester into the second trimester while you're waiting for an appointment. And then the abortion becomes more complicated, more expensive. Um, the people who will be hit the hardest will be the people in Eastern Washington, because there already aren't very many clinics there. There already are long wait times for appointments in Eastern Washington. And um, if you don't have much money or access to reliable transportation, say if you live in a rural area, don't have a car, need to drive to a city for an abortion, um, if you don't have access to child care or money to pay for child care. It's that's that's those are going to be the people who are um, affected the most. And um, so when wait times get longer for appointments, it will be poor rural Washington residents who are um, hurt the most. And Eilish, how will the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling here affect the abortion providers of Washington state? Well, anti-abortion rights activists are trying to 
um, make it illegal for an abortion provider in a state where abortion is legal to provide an abortion for the resident of a state where abortion is illegal. So say for a Washington provider to give an abortion to an Idaho resident. And so um, what the attorney general and um, legislators in Washington state are doing is trying to uh, shore up legal protections for Washington providers, making sure that they can provide abortions for anyone who walks into their clinics in Washington state without legal ramifications. Okay. Uh, thank you for that information. For, that's uh, KOW reporter Eilish O'Neill. Before we say goodbye, Eilish, I know our listeners are seeing people take to the streets across the country. What events uh, should listeners know about that are happening now, today, or this evening? There are two protests planned for downtown Seattle today at those are both at 5 p.m. Um, and there's an event planned, a protest planned for Olympia tomorrow and people and it um, there will probably be additional spontaneous protests as well. Yeah, I've, I've heard about possible uh, the location for this evening's protest in Seattle, maybe being the federal building and Westlake. But can you confirm or deny there? That sounds right. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll see. Um, that's Eilish O'Neill, KUOW reporter, joining us from the newsroom. Thanks for the update and the information, Eilish. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Week in Review on KUOW, and local journalists come together and give you information and analysis. And I want to turn to uh, the folks on our panel today. Uh, why don't I start with Publicola's editor and publisher, Erica Barnett. Erica, where do you want to take off from that information about what the U.S. Supreme Court ruling today means for Washington? Yeah, I mean, I think um, Elise was making a good point that a lot of people, you know, will continue to not have access even to, you know, so-called haven states like Washington um, because uh, it's very difficult to travel because it's expensive. And, you know, I think I've, I've mentioned before, you know, I used to work for an abortion rights group. And um, one of the calls that we got most frequently just out of the blue were people calling, you know, asking for help getting abortions. And usually it was money, um, people from Alaska, people from Idaho um, needing to come here because of, you know, pre-existing restrictions in their own states or for other reasons. And um, we had to tell them, you know, good luck. Like, here's the number for the abortion um, funding groups in our area, but they're incredibly, um, you know, overextended. Um, and I know that there's uh, a lot of people, you know, encouraging uh, donations to um, to abortion access groups, to abortion funds right now, um, which will help with that. But I mean, there, there's, there's so many, you know, the idea that Washington is a haven is just wrong. Um, we will be a haven for people who are, you know, wealthy enough to get here and can take time off and people who are lucky enough to um, be able to access these very limited abortion funds, but and who can take time off and do all the other things, you know, take time off, uh, get child care for their other kids. But um, but there are no haven states. I mean, right now we're seeing this play out in Texas, where New Mexico is, uh, which has, um, I think, six clinics um, is triaging clients from Texas, um, you know, who often have to drive, you know, 12, 13 hours to get there. Um, and they're, they're triaging people based on how far along they are and based on how far they literally had to travel. Um, and, you know, that's resulting in a lack of access. So I, I just, I think that, um, that to, to consider as a haven would be a mistake because mm. it's a very limited haven. Patrick Malone, Seattle Times, anything to add? Well, you know, I'd like to kind of step back to what this means nationally and then zoom into Washington a little bit. But uh, this ruling will be very difficult to unravel, especially when paired with sort of the restrictive voting laws that are in vogue at state houses since the 2020 presidential election and and that, frankly, are designed to favor Republican candidates. So it'll be it'll really up the stakes in the state houses and, uh, you know, the GOP has already been making inroads in many states and sort of establishing the political infrastructure at the local level with getting their hooks into school boards that serve as ladders to higher office. So this has kind of been the flag at the top of the mountain for the GOP for a half century, a half century. And I think that as the you know internal litmus test for whether you're even fit as a candidate to run for office as a Republican, it's not a victory that they're going to hand back to Democrats very quickly. And while Democrats try to re regain the ground lost in today's ruling. Republicans in state houses are going to undoubtedly put them on the defensive on issues like contraception and gay marriage. 
that Associate Justice Thomas today hinted are next on the agenda. So today's ruling is a framework that will have to be navigated around for a long time to come. And its practical effect right now is basically chaos for states where bans will take effect, like Idaho, which takes effect a month from today. Um, and even to an extent, neighbors like Washington that are committed to keeping abortion services available. You know, I read uh, my colleague Nina Shapiro had a really good sort of primer on this, and it talked about everything from, you know, potentially abortion providers from other states and influx of them coming here to meet demand. And so there's just going to be a lot to logistically unravel. And unfortunately, you know, where does the uh, confusion and chaos land? It's on people seeking services. Alex Halverson, anything else uh, that our listeners ought to know about this morning's U.S. Supreme Court ruling, the confirmation of what was leaked weeks ago? Yeah, one thing I'm going to be monitoring is the how the companies on my beat respond to um, subpoenas um, brought by law enforcement. Kind of piggybacks on what Eilish said. You know, if anti-activists want anti-abortion activists want to make it illegal for people to go from one state to Washington to get an abortion. Um, that's a lot of data that they're carrying along with them, you know, their location data, their search history, who they're contacting with in Seattle to help them get the abortion that mm-hmm. creates a creates a web of data that Amazon, Facebook, Google, all these companies are sort of tracking. So, you know, if law enforcement brings subpoenas to them, how are they going to respond to that? Yeah, that's Alex Halverson, tech reporter at Puget Sound Business Journal. And as we're bringing you news and analysis of this morning's U.S. Supreme Court ruling, ending the federal protection, the constitutional protection of abortion rights. And uh, again, it sounds like there'll be some events in uh, Seattle, downtown Seattle, uh, Olympia as well, at least uh, later on uh, in the Seattle case, about uh, five o'clock this evening is what we're hearing. And uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, of course, has been very active this week. So I want to turn to another limit on, a, on another blue state practice, and that is gun regulation. Basically, the U.S. Supreme Court this week ruled that Americans have the right to carry firearms in public for self-defense. Um, Alex, you've covered uh, crime and shootings. So what did, let's start with you. What does this ruling mean for Washington state? Yeah, you know, it's not going to have the same effect that it maybe does in other states because it's not targeting a law we have. Um, but when I was a crime reporter, one thing I would always notice is that when you cover a homicide or a shooting, it's it's very rarely, you know, like a mugging or a crime or anything. It's always two people outside of a bar get into a fight and it escalates, right? And with, with more people carrying guns, it just creates a more unsafe environment, a more likelihood that someone will use that gun. Um so we'll see going forward what it means for Washington and their regulations. Um, Kavanaugh's opinion sort of suggests that there's room for regulation with gun reform or with room for regulation with guns. But um, everything's up in the air right now. Yes, yeah, some room, Patrick. Uh, it sounds like individual states and maybe localities will be um, coming up with their regulations based on what they are allowed to designate as, a, as an area that's too sensitive for for gun carry. Right. And, uh, you know, that's that's going to primarily affect places like New York, whose whose law was specifically struck down on Thursday and California, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Rhode Island. But here in Washington state, uh, I learned as I was covering a story recently that convicted felons, for instance, can quite easily get their rights to carry a weapon restored and then very easily get a concealed carry permit. Uh, we saw that very recently in the instance of Josh Harris. He was a he is a candidate for Pierce County Council, and people might better remember him as the construction company owner in Tacoma, who bailed out three Tacoma police officers charged with murder and manslaughter for the death of Manuel Ellis. He was a black pedestrian who suffocated in their custody in March 2020. But Harris has a past felony conviction for stealing from a customer. He had altered checks to increase their amounts and pleaded guilty. But he later petitioned the court to get his right to possess a gun restored, and it was granted. Then he sought a concealed carry permit in Pierce County, and it was granted. And within my days, within days of my story exposing that A, Harris had a felony, and B, he had gotten gun rights restored, he actually wounded a homeless man uh, who Harris said was driving at him uh, with the same concealed permit or same concealed weapon that he had openly discussed with me on the phone. So states that have had a higher standard for denying concealed carry permits will now have to accept some of these sort of realities, like what happened with Mr. Harris, while their legislatures try to nibble at the margins of this ruling. Before we hear from Eric, I want to understand your your take then on what the 
Supreme Court gun regulation ruling means for Washington state as opposed to some of these other states you mentioned? What what, what are you saying there about how we're in a different position from uh, places like New York? Well, Washington is already fairly permissive in its granting of concealed carry permits. You know, uh, yes, you do have to reapply for, for this, and that might be something that becomes a subject of debate in the legislature about where whether even this sort of modest speed bump to getting a concealed carry permit might be removed. But really, that's what it is. It's a very modest speed bump. And, you know, frankly, now it's practically automatic when someone gets a felony. And once again, this is if it's someone of means, someone who has a lawyer who doesn't abandon them at the moment of disposition of their case. You know, this is the kind of thing that the day your probation ends or the day you walk out of prison, you can be you know, essentially eligible to get a concealed carry permit here in Washington state. And that's not so different from the law prior to yesterday's ruling. Erica Barnett, this U.S. Supreme Court ruling this week on gun regulations. How do you think it affects us here? Well, I mean, you know, as others have said, I mean, it doesn't have an immediate direct effect. Um, I do think that the um, the trend of judicial overreach at the Supreme Court and the trend of legislating um, conservative uh, laws, essentially, from the court, you know, including Roe v. Wade, including um, another case where, um, you know, uh, uh, the Miranda rights were essentially um, overturned. You can't uh, sue if the police violate uh, your right to um, to to you know, protect yourself against self-incrimination. Um, these are, these are not, th- this trend is not going away. And I think it would be foolish to assume that this is going to be the last time the Supreme Court weighs in on something like, um, like guns. And, and in fact, in this decision, um, I believe it was Clarence Thomas, I could be wrong. Um, but um, the, the decision essentially said uh, that um, any, um, any gun rights that do not date from, you know, effectively the mid 19th century, um, and, and that were not on the books, um, then and before can be called into question. So I think, you know, we'll see, we'll see the court um, taking up cases potentially about permitting in general about age restrictions, uh, you know, red flag laws, things like that, that that we do have in Washington state. So I don't think that this is, I think this is just a first step. Um, in dismantling um, the right, uh, your right and my right to um, not be uh, on a bus with, uh, you know, with 40 people armed to the teeth with, uh, you know, with AR-15s. And I think we're going to see more steps in that direction uh, from this court. Monica, you mentioned, I mean, Erica, you mentioned red flag laws. Um, How significant do you think it is that Congress did pass some gun regulation? That's a rare thing. Uh, uh, Just today, it, uh, some things like expanded uh, background checks for gun buyers under 21, giving authorities time to examine mental health records beginning at age 16, and and then m- at least money for these, as you said, so-called red flag laws that Washington state has, letting uh, letting officials temporarily confiscate guns from people if they're found by a court to be too dangerous to own them. So um, uh, I'll start with you and any other uh, one who wants to weigh in. How, again, how significant is this is here in our state overall? Well, um, I think, you know, Congress is at this point kind of spitting in the wind um, uh, on on these issues. Um, the the legislation that passed was was pretty modest and, you know, again, was immediately sort of I mean, not overturned by the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court, you know, essentially, uh, you know, waved waved away the concept of gun restrictions that weren't in place, you know, and weren't contemplated by the founders of the U.S. So um, I, I think, you know, especially if, um, you know, assuming that Democrats don't don't win, uh, you know, big in uh, in this year's elections, which seems unlikely, um, we're just, you know, that's probably as much as uh, gun rights advocates are going to get. So I'm not uh, I'm not the least bit optimistic that, um, you know, we're not going to continue going in the direction of, you know, allowing people to be armed to the teeth in dead cities with without, you know, proper oversight, uh, background checks, et cetera. Well, Alex, my understanding was that this New York state law that got um, struck down involved people having to demonstrate that they have a reasonable enough, they have a good reason to carry a, defense, a, a, a gun for their defense, and that maybe the Supreme Court allowed for the continued use of more content, not sort of content neutral uh, regulations like background checks, that they weren't uh, forestalling some of the some of those regulations. Do you have anything more to say about where Washington State stands on gun regulation today? 
I, I really don't. Um, I think Erica um, summed it up pretty well, as did Patrick. You know, we just we don't have the same laws that New York did that triggered this. Um, so it is going to be different. Yeah. Patrick, anything to add? Well, I would just add that essentially what Congress has been passing this week was written in invisible ink, thanks to the ruling that came down yesterday, because at its core, it limited states ability to judge whether someone is unfit to possess a firearm. It said that the Constitution trumps that. And that is not so different from the roads that Erica suggested, uh, you know, legislation and court rulings might be going down next. Hmm. Uh, Finally, speaking of shootings, one of Seattle's most controversial police shootings finally went to an inquest this week, five years after it happened. We're going to discuss that and more when we return on KUOW's Week in Review with Seattle Times' Patrick Malone, Public Cola's Erica Barnett, Puget Sound Business Journal's Alex Halverson, streaming the whole thing on YouTube or Facebook. You can go watch the show when you search KUOW Public Radio. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give, and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks! You're with KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Police violence against black people. It's been a major feature of national politics, Seattle politics, for years. And one reason locally is the 2017 fatal police shooting of Charlena Lyles. Five years ago, and yet the inquest hearing into that shooting didn't happen until this week. Patrick, will you first remind us what happened that day in 2017? Uh, right. And there there's certainly some very grim details. Uh, Charlena Lyles had called police to report a burglary at her residence, and she was someone known to police. She had had struggles with mental illness. They had visited her at that same location just a couple weeks earlier. Things turned pretty confrontational then, but she was young, just 30 and pregnant when police responding to that burglary call shot and killed her in her own apartment in front of her children as she uh you know, allegedly, based on the words of the police officers, waved a pocket knife at her. Um, so, or I'm sorry that she waved a pocket knife at police. They responded by shooting her multiple times, killing her in front of her children. And Miss Lyles, like I said, young, 30 and pregnant at the time. So sort of the central point of this inquest, I think, for a lot of people following it closely, is whether it will truly change anything about the way law enforcement approaches people from groups that some officers have shown us through their actions, they consider a nuisance. And people with mental illness, like Miss Lyles, certainly fall into that category. And to some officers, quite honestly, so do people who come from backgrounds other than white. We've seen that. Um, you know, but the details are just so grim in this this case that in addition to dying in front of her children, you know, one of her infant children called on top of her dead body, we learned during this inquest. And neither of the two white officers who shot her rendered any medical aid as you know, some really critical minutes passed waiting for the next wave of responders. So it's almost reminiscent to me as as more comes out in this of the Manuel Ellis case I've covered extensively in Tacoma, where he said, I can't breathe, sir. And an officer responded, you know, shut the F up. Uh, now that, that officer who said that is charged with murder, but no realistic policy change is going to instill a higher regard for humanity or certain human lives from the police. And uh, when I talk to people, a lot of black people from here and Tacoma, uh, that's what I think shocks the average Washingtonian paying attention to this case. But, uh, you know, the subtext of this inquest is whether police value these lives that they take before they take them. And the inquest is unlikely to answer those questions, at least not directly. But from a strictly legal standpoint, it, it's a critical inquest because it's just the second test of this new set of standards designed to make the process more equitable towards the people that police hurt. And instead of just deciding whether an officer reasonably feared for their lives before killing someone, these new standards uh, allow the inquest juries to decide whether officers followed the law in their own 
department's policies. So mm-hmm. officers are required to testify, but they can again, you know, invoke their Fifth Amendment right. And the sausage making for this overhaul just really stretched out a long time and included the Supreme Court. So this isn't very common. It's been five years. And uh, now we kind of finally get to see whether all of these reforms, all these changes are going to make any sort of meaningful change in the way officers operate on the street. And I think that's a central question in people's hearts. Yeah, Alex, you uh, were telling me about the a little more about the um, the delay, the five year delay and the role of the King County executive, Dow Constantine. Yeah, as I understand it, um, in 2017, uh, Dow Constantine had a task force review the process, arguing arguing that it favored police. Um, and, you know, maybe he had a point. No officer had been charged with a death since 1971. That officer was acquitted in that case. Um, you know, his decision was fought in the courts over the next four and a half years. And then finally, the Washington Supreme Court upheld the changes to the inquest process, right? Uh, including allowing for expert testimony and witnesses and much of what Patrick was talking about. Um, law enforcement agencies had sued over the changes. That's why it went to the Supreme Court. But, you know, that was that was the reason for the four and a half year delay. And, um, and now we're here with the end result. Erica, what's your take on the impact of this inquest hearing at last into this death of Charlena Lyles? Well, I think that, you know, as as others have said, I mean, it um, it definitely is um, is bringing up a lot of the, you know, grim and incredibly sad details. There was um you know, testimony by a couple of neighbors um, the other day um, who, you know, essentially grabbed the children after they were, you know, taken outside and were comforting and trying to take care of them. And, you know, it was very emotional. There were graphic photos shown. Um, I've been watching online, so I didn't um, I didn't see the photos. They restricted them from the view of the general public. But, um, you know, it's I, I think raising the the issue of police shootings and the necessity or, or lack thereof of you know, shootings like this, um, you know, back into the public eye. Um, I do think that the inquest process, you know, is not designed to uh, determine uh, guilt or innocence. It's not a criminal process. Um, So it's very limited in what it can demonstrate, right? So basically the question is, were they following the law as it existed at the time? Um, You know, since since the shooting, um, the the voters passed I-940, um, which makes it easier to bring criminal charges against police. But again, that is not um, going to impact this inquest. But, you know, I mean, it has been, um, there have been very, very, you know, tragic and sad and emotional details. And I think that they would not um, tend to produce sympathy for the police officers in this case. I mean, you know, you're talking about a five foot three, 110 pound woman facing two um, large men in her kitchen, um, you know, quote unquote armed with um, with a very small knife um, sounds like they didn't hesitate and the fact that they kind of didn't render aid one of the officers described as basically freezing and doing nothing and other officers had to rush in um, to this kind of chaotic scene I mean it, it does not paint the um, the police officers or SPD in a favorable light and Erica can can you or any any of our panelists tell us what could happen because of the inquest are we talking about Discipline, financial settlement, change in policy, what could this add up to? Maybe someone more familiar with the inquest process could take this. I, I don't think that there's a financial, that the, the Lyles family has um, received a, uh, a $3.5 million uh, financial settlement, but mm-hmm. um, perhaps somebody more familiar with the process can explain like what happens at the end of it. Mainly settles the disciplinary case with the officers. I mean, as far as its its specific function relative to charging, I think that, uh, you know, that's something that is in the county prosecutor's arena. And I think that that ship has sailed in this case. Um, But, you know, things can always change on that front. But as far as the specific role of this inquest, it relates to the officers and their actions professionally. But then we still have an accountability process where sometimes decisions get overturned. There are union rights involved. Um, so how much would we expect the ruling that comes out of this inquest hearing to be a final one? You know, for one thing, these terminations are frequently overturned. I've been looking at some of this type of stuff uh, lately. And there are some egregious cases in Washington state where uh, as rare as it is, a department has said, man, you went too far. And even in those cases, arbitrators tend to really, uh, you know, things turn out favorably for these officers in a lot of these cases. 
Erica, how much would you say, I, I, I mentioned this, uh, how this shooting has been part of the backdrop of Seattle politics uh, and, uh, and how that fits into the national politics. How much would you say the, the Lyles shooting had to do with Seattle Black Lives Matter protests, calls to defund police, officers leaving the Seattle Police Department? Well, I would say, I mean, those are different things. I would say mm-hmm. in the case of um, of sort of calls to um, to defund and 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 dramatically change the role of police, um, the the Lyle shooting had a tremendous impact. Um, you know, I, I, I as far as officers leaving, I mean, I think that's happening for a lot of different reasons, and I don't I don't buy the the idea that they're leaving because there were protests in 2020. But, um, you know, I think it's been tremendously impactful. Um, I think among politicians, however, um, there has been a real reluctance to um, to condemn this shooting. Um, you know, during the uh, the George Floyd uh, protests and the protests against police brutality in 2020, um, you know, Mayor then Mayor Jenny Durkin, uh, then uh, police chief Carmen Best were um, were eager to affirm that they believe that George Floyd was murdered. But um, I think that um, neither would say and neither ever did say that Charlene Lyles was murdered. Um, So I think, you know, the impact it had on sort of the political discourse at that level was pretty limited because, you know, uh, the, the, the cops and the mayor don't want to admit or don't, don't want to potentially acknowledge that they got something wrong, particularly with all this legal process going on. So I, I thought that was pretty notable at the time. Did, did that surprise um, you, Erica, so. given the presence of, the, of that knife? Did that, did that uh, different treatment uh, of those two cases, George Floyd and Charlena Lyles, did that surprise you at the time? Well, I mean, the knife, I mean, I've, you know, I've read the, the, the documents um, behind the inquest and, you know, it, 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 and seen a picture of the knife. The knife was, the knife was small and, and Charlena Lyles is a small woman. I'm not a police officer. I've never been in that situation. So I'm not going to, you know, say what they should have been thinking or feeling. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that the cases are similar enough that you can make, you know, th- th- they're analogous. Hmm. Um, you know, this is this is a woman who had uh, who had uh, several children in her house with her at the time um, and, you know, who was known to do things like holding a blade. I mean, she had held a pair of scissors the last time cops had come to her house a couple weeks earlier um, and I mean, these officers knew that history when they went in and knocked on her door and they um, they seem to have uh, disregarded it. Anything else to add on the Charlene Lyles inquest hearing before we move on? Just a point of agreement with with Erica there that I think, you know, increasingly the lens narrows in on this very central question of was it necessary when it comes to these police deaths? Was it necessary to kill her? You know, was it necessary to kill Manuel Ellis? Was it necessary to kill a whole lot of other people under these questionable circumstances or or is there another way? And I think that, you know, anything that moves the needle towards considering alternatives to killing people on the streets is somewhat progress, maybe not enough. Well, I I mentioned the the defund police movement and the uh, the Seattle Police Department being down in its officer count and um uh, so to some extent these issues spill over into financial ones which is why I also wanted to bring up the city of Seattle's budget shortfall um i think it was 170 million dollars what who, who is that going to affect the fact that the Seattle is is so far short of balancing its books well, it's um, so it's 117 um, as of the um, the April projection from the budget office, um, which is huge. I mean, that's a huge amount of money. They were previously saying, oh, maybe it'll be like 34 million. Um, so this is this is way more than uh, was anticipated before. Uh, you know, it's potentially going to affect every single city department that provides services. Um, you know, I would say typically not the police department, not the fire department, those um typically have never gotten uh, significantly cut. So what usually happens is, you know, other stuff gets cut back. Every department's been asked to make or to come up with um, a proposal for up to 6% budget reductions. Um, We've seen this before, actually, with um, under um, former Mayor Mike McGinn. They had to make major, major cuts. Um, And, you know, they did it largely without cutting human services too badly. 
Um, but you know, it's, it's, I think it's going to be a combination of cuts and, um, in the future, you know, in 2024 and beyond trying to come up with some kind of, uh, new tax to, uh, to pay for some of this stuff, because there's like the short, there's a shortfall this year, but then there's shortfalls going out into every year the city projects to, um, you know, uh, all the way out to 2026, I believe. Yeah. Alex Halverson, Puget Sound Business Journal, when uh, local, we don't have an income tax here, when localities tax, uh, lately it's it's been there, the big companies and particularly the tech companies. Um, what are you watching when it comes to uh, budget and taxation locally? Yeah, I'm watching for some transparency around the jumpstart tax, specifically what companies are paying into that. Um, you know, there's two options for how companies can, you know, bigger companies can do it. They can, um, you know, a really uh, primitive way is a less precise way is any employees assigned to a Seattle office, um, you know, they'll count toward the tax. Um, I have a feeling that maybe how Amazon is doing it, you know, they, um, they have 61,000 Seattle based employees, uh, according to an internal headcount tool. Um, and those are based in, in Seattle, you know, I've referenced that with cross reference that with uh, employees I know live in maybe Snohomish but are based in the day one Seattle building. Um, So hopefully maybe on the city's comprehensive annual financial report, we'll get details on, you know, how much Meta, how much Google, how much Amazon is paying um, toward this tax with their employees in Seattle, which are a lot. Mm -hmm. Patrick Malone, I saw in your newspaper, the Seattle Times, that the city of Bellevue is considering taxing big companies like Amazon the, the way Seattle does. Right. And, and, you know, I think that uh, I'm not the expert in this area. I'll be the first to confess, but, you know, just stepping back and looking at it from the generalist as, as a resident's point of view here, I think there become some questions about, uh, you know, the concessions that have been given to some of the big employers here that includes Amazon, Starbucks, Microsoft, and, uh, you know, what, what the community is getting in return. Uh, And, and, you know, there are, sort of these financial pressure points that are created, economic pressure points for any government that sort of turns back on income tax, state income tax as as a whole. And so, you know, we are seeing localities wanting to tap into this. I don't know that it'll ever really go that way, but it's sort of, you know, a, a what have you done for me lately sort of situation where as a resident, you got to be asking, are all these concessions and all these contortions that our government gives to these big companies, uh, are we getting enough in return? And so I think that that is increasingly becoming something that's on the minds of people around Seattle. And, uh, you know, it might just be sort of naive and, and a little bit of a generalist point of view. But every time we turn around, you know, these companies are getting what they ask for. And not always <laughs> are their employees or the, the people who live around here may be benefiting from that because really, let's face it, the the pay scale from these companies and the amount of money that they just plunge into the economy here, it, it really does change the quantum physics of living in Seattle. It affects you know uh, housing. It affects decisions that are made at City Hall and things like this. And so I think that uh, eventually there comes a time where the citizens want to see more than just the voluntary dribs and drops of, uh, you know, philanthropy that are are done affecting small slivers of the community. I think there is a growing demand to say, do more for us companies. The quantum physics of living in Seattle. Erica Barnett, you follow the money at Publicola. What do you want to say about this? Well, you know, I think that um, that this year, I mean, we're going to see another uh, the, the the tax that is on you know the t- jumpstart tax on these large companies. Um, I think we're going to see another attempt to kind of claw back that money, which is earmarked um, in theory. Although you know, it seems like almost every year since it's been in effect, it's gone to other stuff, but it's earmarked for housing. Um, so, you know, there's going to be a battle about that, but I, but I also think, I mean, one interesting thing that, that, that is happening this year is, um, the city is, uh, reconvening or is supposed to reconvene this progressive revenue tax for task force to, um, come up with, you know, potential new taxes, um, most likely not an expansion of the existing jumpstart tax, though, maybe it's been upheld now. Um, but, you know, other possibilities that are outside, you know, as an income tax, which we can't do, um, like a local estate tax or 
um, taxes on institutions that pay, uh, you know, over a certain threshold of, of dollars to employees, like $400,000 in compensation. So there are other ideas that are still out there that came out of the last time that uh, task force met um, that I think are going to be back on the table because, I mean, we, you know, can scarcely afford to be cutting, you know, $117 million this year, you know, and then tens of millions for years and years and years in the future. Um, you know, even even if, you know, even if we do put the police uh, department on the table um, for the first time, uh, it's it's not going to be enough to to avoid, you know, really devastating impacts. We'll watch that with Publicola's editor and publisher, Erica Barnett. We've got Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone with us and Puget Sound Business Journal's tech reporter Alex Halverson doing it all on YouTube and Facebook as well as on the radio. So you can watch the live stream. Just search KUOW Public Radio. We're going to take another short break and then come right back with more Week in Review, including a reason to smile. Don't go away. It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Just as Seattleites are about to celebrate with the Pride Parade this weekend and other Pride Month events, police are investigating an alleged riot plot last weekend at a Pride event in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Police arrested 31 masked members of the white power neo-Nazi-type group Patriot Front. This is the police chief there saying that officers were tipped off by a community member who had seen the group loading up a U-Haul van at a local hotel. I think some of us were a bit surprised by not only the level of um, preparation that we saw, but the equipment that was um, that was carried and worn uh, by those individuals, along with the large amount of equipment that was left in the van when the when the stop happened. These 31 defendants came from about a dozen states, some from the Northwest, but a handful from as far away as Alabama and Texas. Patrick, you've learned a lot about this group, Patriot Front, and its plans. What should we know? Well, you know, first off, when police in Coeur d'Alene caught them, uh, the Patriot Front members had what I would classify as tools of harassment. These were, you know, some tactical shields. They did have some large flags and banners that could have been potentially used as weapons. But I really came to learn a little bit more about this group reporting this story. And that included just reading hundreds of pages of transcripts from, you know, leaked online chats involving some of the very same Washington men who were rounded up in in Idaho. And it revealed that they had plans to vandalize targets, you know, around here, uh, murals for racial justice in Seattle and West Seattle, you know, focusing on college campuses where they would put up propaganda graphics, primarily things like, you know, stickers, their MO is really, uh, you know, to present sort of a welcoming uh, entree into this life where they then expose people to a little more hardcore racism. But, you know, their MO when they're at their most menacing is really to sort of ambush progressive events like the Pride Parade and Coeur d'Alene with disruptive antics that generally fall under the umbrella of protected speech. I mean, these guys are not looking to get arrested or slug it out in the alleys of Portland with anarchists in black block like the Proud Boys or or some of the more confrontational white power groups. Uh, to the contrary, these Patriot Front guys spend hours planning you know, how to carry out their missions that are primarily propaganda spreading without ever being caught or identified. You know, it's really anathema to them to uh, to to show the world who they are. They It's almost like they use these pseudonyms in chats where they don't even know each other's names. It's like KKK members wearing hoods to protect their identity while they carry out whatever they're doing. And so Idaho completely blew up in their faces and being arrested means being identified. Then bosses, teachers, moms, dads, who a number of these Patriot Front members rely on financially or for housing, all of a sudden know what they're into. And they're frankly kind of sad figures, not a lot of success stories among these guys. Uh, The Washington lot is mainly guys in their early 20s who can't seem to even really manage their supply of stickers successfully. But that's not to say that they're not a threat. You know, the sort of crafts and propaganda approach of Patriot Front and its reluctance to use racial slurs on its propaganda materials kind of makes it a target of ridicule from other white power hate groups. Uh, But that's sort of stirring a movement inside Patriot Front that's calling for more overt action, more directly racial statements, and potentially more violence. So if this element of the group co-ops it, uh, the cautious rhetoric, the annoying, barely legal behavior might turn more menacing. 
And there's another insidious element that I've been hearing from readers struck a nerve, and that's Patriot Front's recruitment of teenage boys. You know, one parent who adheres to progressive politics expressed a lot of shock that his son was a part of this white separatist group. And that that's it's out there raising heck in different cities all over the country five or 10 times a year. And that's naturally unnerving for some parents I've spoken with who have boys in the age group susceptible to this message. And uh, you know, which is designed to seem sort of outwardly benign. And that's what kind of sucks these, these kids in, but which spews racism as vile as any other hate group when it thinks no one is looking. And so, uh, you know, all, all of this is done with the objective of making life harder for people in the LGBTQ, Black, Jewish, and immigrant communities. So they are a threat, even though they maybe haven't been as violent as some other groups. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting specificity to the to the charge of conspiracy to riot. Um, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how it actually, how the, how the prosecution comes forward. But uh, any reaction from Alex or Erica to what we know about this Patriot Front group? I really like what um, Patrick said about how, you know, this is a group that's not as outwardly aggressive as the Proud Boys or something like that. It's almost like a gateway to radicalization like that, right? Um, They can play on people who have priors, who have prejudices. You know, there's a lot of rural communities in Washington that are segregated or not very diverse. I grew up in Kitsap County. That's not the most diverse area, especially in some communities there. Um, So it can create this sort of gateway of radicalization for, you know, white teenagers, white young men who you know maybe have misogynistic circles they're in they have misogynistic fathers or uncles um and then as you get more enveloped in that world as it becomes more anonymous like patrick said Mm. it can become more violent so i thought that was really poignant yeah and i would just i would just say you know i mean a couple things cordelaine i think has uh you know has been trying very hard to um to recover its uh reputation as um you know i mean i've always kind of known it as the place the place with the nazis um sorry, Nation, yeah yeah um but um but you know i mean this this uh the details in the story um you know are really are really scary and horrific um, and also, you know, these groups, I mean, I don't, maybe not Patriot Front, but certainly the Proud Boys are, you know, doing rallies uh, west of the mountains. And we had a, uh, we had a prominent um, uh, newscaster um, promoting uh, people coming out and talking to them because, you know, I, I was not at this rally, but I have to assume that they were not um, sort of spewing their openly, you know, racist and prejudicial, you know, prejudiced views openly, um, but uh, but presenting sort of a soft front of solidarity and, you know, brotherhood and, and that kind of stuff um, to um, to sort of lure people in, um, you know, and uh, and groom them into this uh, into this belief kind of belief system, which is really disturbing. Locally, did anyone see this conversation between the Seattle Pride organizers who said they don't they do not want Seattle police who are in uniform to march in the Pride Parade? And the police chief here uh, said, well, then then we we won't participate in the parade and called that. um, Oh, I think it was uh, disappointing. Um, And uh, we we asked some of our listeners about this. We've got this community feedback club that, that, that you can participate in. And um, Mark wrote saying officers have just as much right to celebrate as everyone else, whether that be in uniform or not. In fact, marching in uniform would demonstrate they have allies inside SPD. Maya wrote, this is not about individuals. This is about whether the SPD as an institution represented by their uniformed officers deserves a marquee spot in the parade without having done, to Maya's knowledge, any meaningful work to admit and repair historical wrongdoing. Joe says, I don't feel free to say anything in the presence of law enforcement due to the imbalance of power and past experience. I understand some are proud of their work and their uniform, but please leave your powerful job and your uniform at home when celebrating pride with others who are not police. And Greg says, I strongly support Seattle Pride, and I believe that forcing the police to hide in civilian clothes is metaphorically akin to pushing them into the closet. Any reaction to, <laughs> uh, to this uh, debate in Seattle as we head into another Pride weekend? Yeah, I. Okay. Oh, go ahead, Eric. I'm sorry. I, I just I was I was chuckling at that last comment because I think I think it's deliberately pretty provocative. I mean, police are allowed to march in this parade. They just you know have been asked not to wear uniforms, um, and you know I read I read the chief statement. I, I'm 
actually uh, quite sympathetic to the idea that, you know, there are that to the fact that there are LGBTQ plus people in the police department, you know, who um, do not feel, you know, who do want to represent like a more, you know, a different spin on policing and to say, you know, look, we're, we're here too. But, um, but I, but I have to kind of agree that, that having, um, having them sort of representing, you know, the police department rather than themselves, I mean, is just, it's just going to cause conflict. Um, and I think this letter that the, that the chief uh, wrote, um, you know, unfortunately kind of exacerbates that conflict because, um, you know, you could, you could also just not respond. <laughs> that's all. That's always an option. Alex. It's, it seems like one more taking their ball and going home situation from the police <laughs> in Washington state. You know, we saw the same thing sort of with the, the law change that sort of limits the amount of force they can use when they encounter people who are in crisis. You know, they just have said, well, then we won't respond at all in some cases. And I'm just wondering if there's some middle ground or some conversation, because when the police don't get 100 percent their way, sometimes they just say we're going to abandon you. And that's what's happening with this situation, at least from the perceptions of some. We are right up at the end of the show, Alex. I want to give you a chance to weigh in as well. Yeah, definitely. One thing I think that's been lost in all of this is sort of Pride's um, decision-making process in this. I interviewed the executive director, Crystal Marks, after um, Seattle Pride announced they wouldn't take Amazon's um, sponsorship offer for the parade this year. And one thing she really stressed through every question was they listened to a lot more community feedback this year leading up to parade. What do community members want to see? What do they want from the parade? And some of that was, we don't want organizations that we don't think reflect our values. Um, and, and I think this is a manifestation of that. I think some community members, maybe majority of them, are telling them, you know, we don't want officers in their uniforms in the parade. It's the same thing with the Amazon sponsorship, right? Amazon wanted to emblazon their logo all over the parade. They were going to give them a bunch of money. They were going to be the presenting sponsor and have an Amazon executive speak at the event. And community members told the Pride organization that we don't want that. They're not reflecting our values right now. Alex Halverson is a tech reporter at the Puget Sound Business Journal, and you've been with Patrick Malone from the Seattle Times, senior investigative reporter there, and Public Cola's editor and publisher, Erica Barnett. Thanks for being Week in Review this week, everybody. A jam-packed show, lots to talk about. We really appreciate you being in on the discussion today. And we also want to thank my colleagues here who make this show happen. Producer Kevin Kniestet, social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquizzi and Tio Popescu with Bernard Wallet working the board. Uh, I'm Bill Radke, and what I'm smiling about this week is uh, a, a beaut of an episode of Subtext, which is part of KUOW's new podcast, KUOW Shorts. Find out about KUOW Shorts. Get it wherever you get your podcast. And we're going to do a live event, sort of wrapping up the Subtext series about what goes unsaid. That's Thursday, July 7th, this live event at one of the lecture rooms at McCaw Hall. So find out details and get tickets at KUOW.org slash events, and I'll see you on stage. I'll be on stage. You'll be in the audience. We'll talk Thursday, July 7th.